Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a lawyer specialising in human rights at Doughty Street Chambers in London. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today, I'm joined by Professor Philippe Sands, QC, who is an eminent expert on international law. He is a professor at the University College London. He is a QC, that's Queen's Council, a senior barrister at Matrix Chambers in London. And he has appeared in every international court worth appearing in. Um, and he has written, in my view, one of the best modern books about human rights. Highly recommended. It's called East West Street. And there is a sequel to it coming out this spring called The Rat Line. This discussion was recorded live at an event organised by Tzedek, a brilliant organisation who are the UK Jewish community's response to extreme poverty. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. For 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to support the podcast, then please consider giving a few pounds a month via our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash better human. It's an absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce and welcome our guest speakers tonight. We have Philippe Sands in conversation with Adam Wagner. Philippe is a barrister, author, academic and scriptwriter. He was the winner of the 2016 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction for his outstanding book, East West Street, which we all love. Adam is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, a visiting professor of law at Goldsmiths University, and founded and chairs the multi-award winning human rights public education charity, Rights Info, and presents the Better Human podcast. Adam and Philippe will be in conversation and are happy to take questions at the end of that conversation. And so now, please, can we have a big round of applause and welcome to Philippe and Adam. Um, good, good evening, everybody. I'm delighted to be here, and it's such a um, privilege to be here for Tzedek. Um, I'm also delighted that Philippe has taken his jacket off, which has given me the signal to take my jacket off, and now I'm, now I'm a little bit cooler. Um, but I, I'm going to, first of all, um, ask Judith why the topic human rights for this event? Well, it fits naturally with Tzedek. Tzedek means justice. And we take a human rights-based approach to our international development. We recognise that human rights are universal, that they're inalienable, and that the achievement of human rights is a key objective for us. So we work with the most marginalised members of society. So we work with women, with children, people with disabilities, people who live in rural communities. And so for us to invite you here tonight to talk about human rights, justice, it's an absolutely perfect uh, perfect mix for us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, Philippe. You should explain why we're standing. But we're standing because we decided that so the people at the back could, could see. And also we are, yeah, no, and, 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 and we are barristers. So in theory, in theory, we're better on our feet than, uh, and we than still, sitting down. And we still can stand. Yeah, we, we still can stand, even after all the fantastic food. So, um, Philippe, I'm, I'm, I wanted to split up um, this, our initial conversation before we open this up to questions into three topics um, and focusing really on, on your recent work, your, I, I, I guess, would it be fair to call it your magnum opus encompassing East West Street, the rat line, um, my Nazi legacy, this kind of exploration of the history of Europe through the, hist- the lens of the history of your family, through the lens of the history of the human rights movement. Um, and I'm going to split it into three sections. And the first section is the lawyer as storyteller. And, and the question I wanted to ask is, you know, th- th- people, people know lawyers as, I guess, arguers, people who argue cases, and perhaps um, advocates, people who advocate, advocate for causes. Um, but I think, as, as all lawyers know, that the, 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 almost the first skill of being a great trial lawyer is telling the story that your client needs to tell and telling it in a way which will convince the, the panel, the judge, to, um, to go in your client's favour. Um, but you've sort of taken that a step further to telling a much bigger story, um, the story of Europe, the story of the post-Holocaust and pre-Holocaust um, development of human rights law, but also how genocides happen. And what, what led you from one to the other, from being the trial advocate to being 
the the, the storyteller. Sure. Well, firstly, can I just say it's incredibly nice doing this with Adam, who I've come to know over the years. We, we're, uh, we go back now some time. It's also very inspiring to be here uh, for Tzedek. On behalf of Tzedek, I reiterate, give and give and give as much as you can. Um, it's a wonderful organization. I've only recently come to know of its detailed work. I was counsel for Ghana uh, in its boundary dispute with Cote d'Ivoire. I do a lot of work in India. So these are places I know about, I care about. And this is really inspiring and important work. And that's why I'm here tonight to absolutely wholeheartedly uh, support it. So Adam, you're absolutely right. Um, as a lawyer, you are a sort of storyteller. And we have to learn to present facts and legal arguments in a way that compels. My courtrooms are different from other courtrooms. I don't do, like Adam, domestic litigation. I only litigate in international courts. Next week, for example, I'll be litigating at the International Court of Justice. I'll be acting for a country called the Gambia, who have brought legal proceedings against Myanmar formerly known as Burma, for its treatment of a group known as the Rohingya. It is a case brought under the Genocide Convention, and the allegation is that Myanmar is right now, as we speak, engaged in a genocide of the Rohingya community, one of uh, about 140 minority groups in Myanmar. Curiously, I will have opposite me, and I will literally be arguing against her, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is leading the delegation of Myanmar next week in The Hague, extraordinarily. So she is absolutely taking responsibility for everything that is happening, which is uh, pretty remarkable. But I mention that because in that court, it's not one judge or three judges like here, or five judges if you get to the Supreme Court, it's 15 judges. And the 15 judges come from 15 different countries, 15 different legal cultures, 15 different personal stories, 15 different ideologies, 15 different geographies and histories. So when you're arguing before the International Court of Justice, which I have now done for nearly 30 years, you have to present your arguments in a way that is accessible, understandable, persuasive, not for a single judge, but for 15 judges who sit like any human being with prejudices and concerns and likes and dislikes. So a single set of arguments before that court has to reach 15 different individuals. You need eight out of the 15 to win your case. So you go through an exercise of targeting your legal arguments to deal with individual judges. And that means you spend a lot of time preparing your story. For Myanmar case next week, I'm doing the closing argument. I think I'm up to draft 17. So the simple point that I'm making is that East West Street is a book written by a lawyer. It's a book written by someone who has been forced to tell stories in an international courtroom, which is a sort of theater. And so that's, I think, where that has come from. The actual writing of this book is, of course, part of a broader initiative. I became concerned in about 2003, 2004, that issues of international law, which is the subject area I'm most closely connected with, were not reaching a bigger audience. Actually, the catalyst was the war in Iraq, where, as you remember, it's probably the first time in my adult life that was it legal, was it illegal, became an issue of public debate. And I wrote a first book about that. I then wrote another book about the Bush administration's embrace of torture, waterboarding, and other things. And then I get this invitation to go to this odd city that I didn't even know where it was called Lviv. I didn't know the first time I heard of it, that it was Lemberg, that it was the same place as the place where my grandfather was born, but would never talk about. And so I went and I was invited to give a lecture on the origins of the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity. Genocide is about the protection of groups. Crimes against humanity is about the protection of individuals. And I discovered in preparing the lecture that the origins were not only the region of Galicia, not only the city 
of Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg, Leopolis, but the very law school that had invited me, because the two people who invented those two concepts in 1944-45 were both students of that law school, and the law school did not realize that was the case. Hirsch Lauterpack, professor of international law at Cambridge University, was the one who put the concept of crimes against humanity into international law, the Nuremberg Charter, and Raphael Lemkin put, it literally invented the concept of genocide in November 1944. Two Polish Jews, both students of Lviv University. So I sort of fell into this story. It was an accident, uh, or maybe it wasn't. I'm going to pick up a bit of East-West Street now, because there's a bit in the prologue. You're speaking to a woman who comes up to you at the lecture and says, I've got something to tell you, but in private. And she reveals that she's Jewish and she reveals... She's sort of Jewish. She's sort of... She sort of reveals it. Yeah, sort of reveals it. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 you, and you say this, say, I understood she was, what, she, what she was telling me, sending a signal about her own roots. Whether a Polar or Jew, this was not a matter to be spoken of openly. Issues of individual identity and group membership were delicate in Lviv. Lviv, Lviv, yes. Um, I understand your interest in Lauterpacht and Lemkin, she continued, but isn't your grandfather the one you should be chasing? Isn't he the one closest to your heart? Um, and that to me seems to be, I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's the beginning of your book, but that, does that represent something of a turning point for you in terms of your career, that you, you spend a number of years looking outwards and fighting for other people's causes? Um, because in, in part, of course, because of your family history or your his, the history of your family and the Holocaust, but then all of a sudden you turn up in this place where your family is from and a, an, an, and a random woman, a woman that just comes out, up to you out of nowhere says, shouldn't you be turning inwards and focusing on something that's more personal than um, Lemkin and Lauterpacht? Isn't that what you really are looking for? I, I mean, I, I'm of the view that none of us is a blank slate when we comes into the world. We have impregnated in us the stories of our ancestors. How they affect us, how they are communicated to us, is a matter of considerable complexity. Um, I was very interested in that issue. I knew my grandfather very well. He was born in 1904. He died in 1997. I was very close to him. He lived in Paris. Um, he was an extraordinary human being, a man of poverty and dignity. And he never once talked to me or my brother about what happened before 1945. There'll be people in the room for whom this will be a very familiar story. It was a protective silence. I, I, I'm very careful in the book. I don't judge anyone. I don't criticize anyone. I understood it, and now looking back on it, as a protective silence. But when, but in a sense, my interest in him predates my being in Lviv. The Simple fact is, I'm in a fortunate position. I get a lot of invitations to give a lot of talks. Why did I accept to go to Lviv? I didn't have a desire to give another lecture on international law. I wanted to find the house where my grandfather was born. Why? Because it would help me understand who my grandfather was. And if I knew better who my grandfather was, I would have a sense that I would know better who I was. So, I'd reached at the point the invitation arrived. I was about 50 years old. Um, and I think you reach a point in life where you've done the things you basically want to do. I have a fantastic family. I have great kids. I have a great job, jobs. You know, I've done everything I want to do professionally. And so you start asking yourself questions. I'd grown up in the shadow of the silences. My mother is first generation Holocaust survivor. My mother was born in Vienna in July 1938. Not a good place to be born Jewish or a good time to be born Jewish. And so she doesn't know what happened to herself in the first five years. She has no memory of it. It's extraordinary. And in fact, what happened was she was taken to Paris and she was hidden in a small town called Meudon, and uh, saved by relief organizations, Catholic families, a whole series of strange, curious events, and saved by an evangelical Christian missionary called Elsie Tilney, who is written about in the book, and who is, I think, for many people, 
amongst many remarkable people in that book, one who really stands out. I mean, I stand before you because of an evangelical Christian lady's particular interpretation of Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 10, verse 1. That's why she went to Rome to go and collect two little Jewish girls. And it's as simple as that. And that is a very moving story for me. That touches me very, very deeply. It's caused me curiously, uh, not only, of course, to open the door as to who I am and who my grandfather was and my relationship with that, but I now look in a different light on that community that she came from, the, the congregation that she was a member of, the Surrey Chapel in Norwich, still exists. And I go up and I'm invited to do sort of guest sermons, um, this sort of North London Jewish guy. And we've become really close. And it's a really interesting relationship. Um, so it predated that lady, a student who came up to me and said that because that's why I was there. When I came back from Lviv, I sort of pondered what I discovered. It, I, who here has been to Lviv? Okay. Run, don't walk. It is a fantastic city. It is totally safe. The food is excellent. The hotel you should stay at is the George, 25 quid a night. It's brilliant. It's like straight out of a Joseph Roth novel. And um, there are now direct flights. The mayor of Lviv tells me in part because of East West Street. There are plaques and commemorations of Lauterpacht and Lemkin. And all of a sudden, a story in that city that was a secret untold story has become a told story. Uh, and so that is a source of much happiness. But it was, it came from within. It was, you know, many of you will know what I'm referring to. There's just a point. Doesn't happen in your teens, doesn't happen in your 20s, 30s, you're starting work, you're having a family, whatever it is. And then there comes a point in life where you start asking yourself the bigger questions and you've got the time and the space to do it. And you do it. So the second theme I was going to raise with you um, connects with that very much, which is what Eleanor Roosevelt said about human rights being in the small places close to home. And if they're not there, they're not anywhere. And one of the things that you managed to do, one of the reasons why I think East West Street is so successful, leaving aside the, the fascination of the story, is you humanize the, these grand concepts, and particularly genocide and crimes against humanity, these two, the, you put them into, I mean, you don't invent it, but you focus on the two, both Jewish men, both in their own way, victims of the Holocaust. You put them, you put it into their lives and you explain that there's sort of almost a rivalry, but not quite a rivalry between those two concepts. And is there, when in this task that you've set yourself of getting people interested in international law, do you think that's the answer to humanize the concepts? Well, I've described a sort of a little path. I mean, I am a classical international lawyer, conservative with a small c. I followed a very traditional academic career, barrister's career. Um, I'm not a revolutionary type of person, although I find myself increasingly feeling uncomfortable with the status quo on a number of things. Um, and I wrote a book in 2005 called Lawless World. It was the book, some of you may remember, that revealed that Tony Blair's legal advisor, his attorney general, had in the space of 10 days, totally reversed the position he'd taken on the legality of the war. He had gone from saying unequivocally, it is illegal on the 7th of March, 2003, to saying unequivocally, it is legal on the 17th of March, 2003. And putting aside the merits or demerits, I was just curious, how does that happen? How does, how does someone do that? We're barristers. I mean, we know that doesn't happen. You don't suddenly change your mind. There has to be an intervening event. Yeah. But being bullied by your client, I think, is the, uh, was the answer there. I mean, it's, there's complex levels of complexity. But, but the simple point was there was an intervening event. And I wanted to find out what that intervening event was. And it's connected because what I write about in East West Street is the reality of a trial. 
We all know about the famous Nuremberg trial. I knew about it. I taught it for years and years and years. Um, I was very familiar with it. But what I didn't know was the tiny details. I didn't know, for example, that my teacher of international law, Elie Lauterpacht, that his dad had been a prosecutor at Nuremberg. And so I had access to papers because Ellie was my mentor, my teacher, my colleague, my friend. And I was able to learn what Hirsch Lauterpacht had gone through. And I was able to discover, um, for example, that he had attended the opening hearing of the Nuremberg trial. And I found a photograph of that, which Ellie had never seen, which moved him very much. But of course, as you know, the book is not just about three men. It's not just about Leon Lauterpacht and Lemkin. There is a fourth man in it, Hans Frank, who was Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer. And through Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, who I have come to know very well, and who is a friend now, curious as that may sound, because he is so remarkable a person, um, I got a lot of material about his father. And I dug and I dug and I dug and I dug. And what did I find? What I found was Lauterpacht prosecuted Frank. But at the moment Lauterpacht began the prosecution of Frank, he did not know that the man he was prosecuting was responsible for the extermination of his entire family. Okay, 80 people or more. Now, pause for a moment. As a lawyer, anyone who's here who's a lawyer will realize immediately that is huge. You're in court. You are doing your work. You've had no information about the fate of your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your uncles, your cousin, nothing, pre-telephone, pre-internet, pre-anything. You worry about them and you hear in court about the terrible things that happen in Lviv and you know that the man who's sitting in the dock just a few feet from you was the governor of that territory, but you don't know what's happened to them. So that creates a space into which the imagination opens up. And that was the space I wanted to occupy. I wanted to explain that international law is not some technical, you know, legalistic thing. It's about real people and real lives and real moments of intense emotion and intellect and human drama. And the moment you present international law in that way, amazingly, People want to read about it. Now, I didn't know that while I was writing East West Street. You know, you're, you know, you've written books. You know what it's like. You sit in a corner, you write, and you write, and you write, and it took seven years to write. And so it's a very solitary exercise. And then it gets bought by a publishing house, and then a second publishing house, and then a third publishing house, and then it's been printed in 25 languages or something, and then it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And you ask yourself, what is that about? There aren't hundreds of thousands of international lawyers. So I've come to understand that it's because East West Street tells a story, but it's a universal story. So I get invited to Bangladesh, Ghana, South Africa, Argentina, <laughs> Chile, Mexico, places that are not populated by large or any numbers of Jews, Poles, Ukrainians, and Germans. And what resonates with them is the beating heart of the book, the relationship between the individual and the group. Question of identity, very pertinent right now in the United Kingdom. Who are we? How do we wish to define ourselves? And how do we wish the law to protect us? Do we wish the law to protect us because, as Lauterpacht posited, we are individual human beings with minimum rights at all times, or, as Lemkin said, because we are members of a group and that group deserves protection? And in those crucial questions, everyone in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about, and it touches every living human being. It's about identity, it's about feelings of security, it's about feelings of protection. And I stumbled across, I wasn't looking for that theme. It just emerged as I was beavering away doing my stuff. And, and I'm, I'm going to open up to questions in, in a couple of minutes. And Philippe has kindly said, ask anything. So, so do ask anything. Um, but but the, the third theme, uh, my final question is, 
it's something I think of as, as the dying of the light. And, and I think it's something which really comes out of the rat line, your, your brilliant podcast, which I just re-listened to um, in, in the last couple of weeks. And, and the thing that really that emerges, um, and I think the reason why probably it and East West Street have struck a chord, is this, is you tell the story, not of this moment of, of sort of, of justice for individuals, the Nuremberg story, but the, the moment, the, the years after, when instead of there being some sort of great justice moment, there was instead this great evil kind of just, just flattened back down into, into, the conscious, into the subconscious of Europe. You know, the, the Nazis took their uniforms off. Many of them were recruited by the Americans to fight the Soviets. You know, people went back to their jobs. Some were prosecuted, some went to South America. And, and, gen and, and generally speaking, people just got back on with their lives. And, and that, I think, is is as important a story as the great moment of justice in Nuremberg. And what, it, and what it shows, and the question I wanted to ask you, is that once that happens, and it inevitably happens, because you can't just put a, a three million Nazi members of the Nazi party on trial, it inevitably happens in every society that experiences these great events. How then do you stop the dying of the light? That when people are, when all of those people who experienced those events die out and they nearly are all gone how do you stop it happening again and what can you what can you do what can we do what can we all do well i mean you you raise a package of hugely important questions there and issues i mean i'm pretty much persuaded or i've come to the view that what's happening right now in europe and in this country anti-semitism islamophobia racism across the political spectrum is able to occur in part because there is a vacuum. Those who experienced what Europe is capable of doing to itself in that period of the 30s and the 40s are disappearing. And as they disappear, first-hand memory and first-hand experience disappears. And into that gap comes what we're seeing now, the rise of nationalism, the rise of populism, the aim of certain political leaders to destroy the 1945 settlement. I mean, how ironic, how terrible that the two countries that created the 1945 settlement, the UN Charter, Nuremberg, the Universal Declaration, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the United States and Britain, are the two countries that now want to destroy it. I mean, it just pains me to see what is going on right now as they run away from it. It is the connection between Brexit and Trump. It is the destruction of the 1945 order. I don't make that point in a party political sense, but in a broader international sense, that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on now. Why is it going on? It's going on because our leaders have no personal experience of what happened and they have no one to talk to to remind them of what happens when order breaks down as it can again. I'm not saying it will, but it can. The rat line, as um, Adam has generously said, I mean, continues the story. The publishers, my wonderful publishers, Weidenfeld and Nicholson don't want to call it a sequel because they say that if you call it a sequel, people won't buy it because they think they've got to read the first one, which they don't. It's a totally freestanding story. But it is a sequel because it's one of the characters from East West Street, the deputy to Hans Frank, whose name was Otto Wächter. Otto Wächter was as malign as his patron. Um, he was indicted for mass murder, the killing of hundreds of thousands of human beings, mostly Jews, but also a very large number of Poles. And on the 9th of May, 1945, he escaped. He disappeared off the face of the earth. Disappeared into thin air. Not seen again. Until July the 13th, 1949, when he turns up in Rome, in a hospital run by the Vatican, dying in the arms of a Vatican priest. What happened in the intervening four and a half years? That's the story of the rat line. And it's a story that in your many ways, you're right, is absolutely shocking to the core. Um, I mean, I reveal nothing that is not already in the public domain because those of you who listen to the podcast will have heard episode six, 
my next door neighbor, John Le Carre, the spy writer, who I went for advice as I realized I'd stumbled into a story about espionage in the Cold War. It's, about- it's good having John Le Carre as your next door neighbor. If, if you're a lawyer looking to write a book, I mean, that's a good you know, next door neighbor to I have. Know that's that's I- all about the yeah. Cold War and espionage. And so I call someone who does know. And he says, come over, send me a few documents in advance so I know what we're talking about and bring some cakes. I go, we sit. He's got the documents and you can hear him. He's got the most extraordinary voice. Um, This is what he says on the podcast. He said, I found this really interesting, Philippe, because you see, I was there in 49. I said, what? He said, yeah, I was a 19-year-old soldier and I was posted to Austria and I had the job of interrogating Nazis. That was my first job. And it was very confusing because I had been brought up in the belief that Nazis were bad, evil, terrible people. And now my bosses, my patrons were telling me I had to recruit them and forget about what they had done. I said, forget? He said, yes. The instruction was, if they are a particularly bad character, we just lose the files. And that's what happened. And that, I must say, when he said that to me, he was—he remains appalled by what happened. I'm going to get the German wrong here. Is it Purcellschein? Purcellschein. Yeah, the white—the whitening of the individual, um, named after a, a washing, a washing powder, that was very well known. So, it, it's a very different kind of story. I'm very curious to see. Um, how how it goes. But I think one of the reasons there is such interest in, well, there was in East West Street and in the podcast and the BBC Radio 4 series. For those of you who don't listen to podcasts, I just got a word from the BBC. They're going to rebroadcast it on Radio 4. It was broadcast a year ago, but they're going to rebroadcast it on the 27th of December and the 3rd of January. Um, is that uh, people sense something's going on right now. We don't know what it is. We don't know where it's going to lead to. We don't know the direction. We don't know how bad it may or may not be. But something's going on. And we all sense that. And it makes people anxious. And in their anxiety, people want to read about what happened before and what was done about it and how did we address it and what can we learn. And what we can learn is is incredibly important. Um, I'm very partial to the writings of a wonderful professor of romance languages called Victor Klemperer. Has anyone here heard of Victor Klemperer? Okay. He wrote extraordinary diaries from 1933 to 1945. But he also wrote a book um, called LTI, Lingua Tertiae Imperii, The Language of the Third Reich, where he tried to understand how language was changed and transformed by our political leaders, by his political leaders. And slowly it caused people to change their perspectives. Um, And in the introduction or the first pages of that, he writes that my instinct in 1933 as a professor in the University of Dresden of Romance Languages was just to bury my head in the work and assume it would all go away. And it didn't. And those words are important words, and I think we have to think about them. Interestingly, not everyone wants to talk about this or think about this openly. I was commissioned in the summer to write a piece for the Financial Times weekend section, which I write for them quite often, and it was on the use of language by Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and what one could react to in relation to, um, you know, what had come before. And um, it was a long piece. It was two and a half thousand words. I wrote it inspired in part by the writings of Klemperer and and also the writings of Primo Levi, who focus very much on how things begin with language and then one thing always leads to another. You start with the tiny little things and then and then it goes. And both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, who I referred to in the article too, 
use language which opens the door to pernicious things, plainly in my view. And I signed off on the piece, and the editor loved the the, 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 the editor of the piece loved it, and it went to the lawyers because I had said at the end, this is the language that can lead to genocide. And I gave many of the examples, both of of, of all three of those uh, individuals. And got through everything. The lawyer said it was fine. I'd supported everything. I'd been very, very careful. And then it came back where the editor of the weekend section said, no, we can't run this. You're going to have to take that stuff out about language and genocide. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. That's what I believe. And that's the message that has to be said. And so it was pulled. And I then sent it to Le Monde, El País, the Dutch papers, the Swedish papers, the Norwegian papers, the German papers, the Austrian papers, the South American papers, published in about 15 newspapers around the world, never published in the, in the UK. And so I sense, and I've sensed it also in this election, on all sides, an unwillingness to really confront what is happening. And that is what worries me. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Let's open up to questions. Um, if people can, um, may, maybe I'll take I'll take a couple and and I'll I'm going I'll repeat them and then and then we can um, and then we'll have, yes. Okay, so two questions. First of all, should human rights extend to the environment? And the second question: What is it about uh, cultures generally, but also Jewish culture, that might lead people to be different kinds of of, of lawyers and take different kinds of of paths towards this issue? I mean, I teach environmental law. I've, I've written books on international environmental law. It's a subject I care very much about. So I'm very familiar with this. In fact, it's not a new idea. The single best law review article I have ever read uh, was published in 1972 by an American academic in the University of Southern California Law Review. Um, Christopher Stone, the son of I.F. Stone, Should Trees Have Standing? That's where it all starts. And that has had a long gestation period to bring us to where we are now. But there is now a move to give inanimate objects or living creatures other than humans rights under international law with the big question, who acts on behalf of nature? And that's a complex question. I mean, I tend to think the law is too anthropocentric, too much focused on the human, and that there is space for that but I recognize the practical and theoretical difficulties of doing it and implementing it and giving effect to it. But plainly, we face significant environmental challenges right now. And if we're going to have a solution, the law has to be part of that solution. And that includes all of the law, including human rights law. But of course, it's environmental rights, not human rights that we're talking about. I mean, on the... um, I mean, you know, Jews are a um, magnificent, varied species. Uh, I've just come from Buckingham Palace. I somehow, I don't know how the guest list was chosen, but was invited to Prince Charles's celebration of the Jewish community. So, you know, an hour ago, an hour and a half ago, I left Buckingham Palace and I just marveled at the diversity. It was really amazing, actually. Um, It was really uplifting Prince Charles gave a really sincere speech, actually. It was incredibly touching uh, that plainly resonated with people who were from across the political spectrum. There were rabbis, accountants, lawyers, cooks, the voluntary sector, famous writers, famous artists. There were doctors. I mean, everyone was there. Everyone was, it was really, it was really sort of an amazing diversity. So it's in that context that I think about your question. I think one of the great things about Jews is they can't be pigeonholed. Jews are capable of good and bad like any other human being is capable of good and bad. I've gone through the 
interesting experience <laughs> recently. Uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to totally avoid party politics. I think whatever party politics everyone has is completely fine and great with me and completely respected. But I, I should just say that I'm not particularly partial to Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and so I woke up one morning um, and opened my email, oh my, switched my computer on, and was deluged with emails, have you seen Time magazine? So some people had the kindness of sending the article, which um, uh, had Benjamin Netanyahu saying it's the best book he's read, East West Street, um, with a photograph of him reading it. <laughs> so, you know, so then the photographs start pouring in and, you know, um, this, was, this was one photograph I did not tweet. No. Um, you, you, I'll tweet it this evening. You, uh, <laughs> a number of other people did tweet it. Um, but I think it's sort of magnificent. It's, I, I mean, I, let me answer that question in a different way. So having immersed myself in that period of my grandfather's time, I have asked myself the question many times, what would I have done? What would I have done if I was not Jewish, if I was German, for example? Well, you know, if I was Jewish, what would I have done? What would I have done? And of course, we hope that we would have done the right thing, but we cannot know what we would have done. I don't know. I hope I would have done the right thing wherever I had ended up. But I think each of us has in us a capacity to do good and a capacity to do bad. And the question is how we control those capacities and how we manage our tendencies to do things if they're not going to be good. What do we do about them? Who do we turn to? How do we interrogate ourselves? I mean, these are questions, these are questions for the rabbis amongst us, but for all of us. We all have experienced the instinct of doing something which is not a good thing. And hopefully we've never done a terrible thing. T tomorrow I have a really interesting day. I'm, I'm off to Vienna for three days. So I've mentioned the name Lauterpacht. I've mentioned the name Wächter. You're familiar with those names. In October 1919, two young law students entered the University of Vienna Law School on the same day. Hirsch Lauterpacht and Otto Wächter. The paths they took were totally different. So how do you explain that? I mean, these are both people who come from middle-class backgrounds, not wanting for anything in terms of basic needs, highly intelligent, highly educated. One goes one path, another goes another path. They have the same teachers. I've now got their student record. But it's interesting who they took classes with. And you dig down and you see that the battle between Lauterpacht and Wächter is reproduced by, in the battle between Hans Kelsen, who was Lauterpacht's favorite teacher, and Alexander Holt Ferneck, who was Wächter's favorite teacher. You know, one believed in rights for individuals. One was a rabid anti-Semite. Now, it's sort of, and that's what I'm talking about tomorrow at the University of Vienna Law Faculty. And it just interests me how our paths are determined. And it actually just needs one class with a good person or one class with a bad person. And you go off in a direction. And as you will see when you read the route line, because it's not done in the podcast, we didn't have long enough to do it. 10 episodes, 30 minutes. No, it's, I'm not saying you have to buy the book. But one of the things I've traced in the book is how once you cross a line, it leads to the next line. And, once it, you just, and just one thing just leads to another. And you really see it in the case of Otto Wächter. It's incredible. Doesn't this just go back to the what, what I asked you before of how do you when the light dies and the people die out, how do you remind people? And, and I suppose one answer is not, we, we know about humanizing victims. And I think, you know, if you think of Schindler's List and that sort of thing, 
you know, victims and heroes. In a way, it's it's difficult, but it's easy because people want to humanise victims. But humanising perpetrators is the way to convince each and every one of us that we could, if facing the certain kinds of choices, we can move in the wrong direction just as easily as we can move in the right direction. You've just watched the film, My Nazi Legacy. Yeah. So you have observed two sons, the son of Hans Frank, Nicholas Frank, who thinks his father was a monster. The first time I met Nicholas, I mean, it's a, again, I said it's a sort of barrister's book. I research the book as I research a case. I read everything. I get my research assistants to find everything, in particular, the things that go against my own arguments, because I want to know how the other side thinks, how the other side's going to argue it, how do you deal with that argument? And so I came across a book written by Hans Frank's, one of his, he had five children, Nicholas, published in German in 1988, very controversial book called Der Vater, The Father, a sort of 350-page uh, excoriation of his father, a single letter of hatred of his father. I, I want to meet this guy. Sort of interesting book. Um, I track him down. I find him, invites me to meet him in Hamburg. I meet him for the first time on the terrace of the Hotel Jakob, just outside uh, Hamburg, near Blankenese. And the first thing he says to me is, Philippe, you have to understand, I'm against the death penalty in all cases except the case of my father. <laughs> okay? So that's pretty big. The second thing he does is he whips a photograph out of his jacket pocket, and it's a picture of his father's dead body. I was pretty shocked. I mean, I'm sort of English and British, and it's not what we do in London, really. <laughs> and so I said, well, why are you showing me that, Nicholas? And he said, because, because I want you to know that every day, the first thing I do when I wake up is to make absolutely sure my father is dead. <laughs> we came to know each other. We've become good friends. He sounds like a crazy person. He's not. He's a very distinguished journalist, and he has committed himself. And right now, he's very worried about what's happening in Germany and what's happening in Britain and what's happening in other places. He's extremely anxious about it. And one day, he said to me, you know, Philippe, they're not all like me. Sidebar, my wife says that the, the, I haven't really written about it, but the single most interesting fact that comes out of my relationship with Nicholas is that all the kids of the top Nazis all know each other. They're all in touch, not as friends, not as networks, but they all have stayed in contact. They're all bonded by horror, by this terrible connection, which is interesting. He says to me, they're not all like me. Since you're so interested in Lemberg and Galicia, would you like to meet the son of the governor of Galicia? The man who built the ghetto in Lviv and did terrible things. I said, actually, I would, but I'm not sure he'd want to meet me. He says, no, no, you'll see. So he's a nice man. He'll, 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 he'll invite you. You'll get on with him. You won't like some of the things he says, but you'll get on. And I met Horst Wächter, who believes his father was a decent and honorable guy. And for 10 years, we have known each other. And we have both bent over backwards to continue the relationship, to continue the conversation. And Nicholas was right. There are things that I don't like that he says. But I like him. And he's not a Nazi. And he is a damaged person whose world was destroyed in 1945. He went from having everything to having nothing. And when you're six years old and that happens and your father disappears and your mum stays behind and has six kids to bring up and everything, that leaves a mark, obviously. And as I listened to his story, I realized, hmm, I'd never thought about it from that side. Actually, what is it like to grow up with a dad, as in Nicholas's case, who has killed four million people? I mean, that is just huge. It's just a huge thing. Or your dad is alleged to have killed a million people and then disappears and never gets justice or never faces justice. Those are really big things at a human level. And I think one of the lessons I've learned in this whole experience is you have to look at it from the other side. Not because the other side is right, but to understand what it is that causes certain people to do the things that they do and to think as they do. Not because you want to approve or necessarily disapprove, although you might, but because understanding and talking, and I think that's what we're in real danger of doing right now, is we're being segmented into little groups of people and we don't reach across the aisle and have conversations with people who 
we disagree with. We tend increasingly to talk only to the people we feel comfortable with, people who agree with us, people who share our views. What we absolutely have to do right now, however difficult it is, and I find it difficult, is engage fully and respectfully with people you don't disagree with. Not if they've crossed certain lines, not if they're racist, not if they're anti-Semitic, not if they're Islamophobic. But there's a lot of people who aren't like that, but who, you know, get pulled and nudged in particular directions and, oh, it's not so bad or this or that or the other. We've got to engage. And disengagement is a real problem. So uh, we're, we're, we're being two barristers, we could go on all night and probably would if we weren't dragged out of here with, with ropes. Um, I, I just wanted to finish off with that reminded me of, of my favourite bit of the rat line, which you can download on the Apple podcast, which is that when, um, for convoluted reasons, um, Philippe's in, in America and speaking to the son of a CIA agent who and he finds out he's got a half brother and um, and that's an interesting story in itself but he says he's comparing himself to, to i think to nicholas frank and he says he says and then just found out that his father had an affair with his secretary and says you know well i suppose it's all about luck isn't it because i i i, I could have been brought up as a guy who uh, the son of a guy who killed four million people or i could be the guy whose dad slept with his secretary and, <laughs> and i thought and i think that's a good place to end as you can't you can't choose your parents. <laughs> so thanks very much, Philippe. Thank thanks you. to Tzedek um, for hosting this. Thank you so much to Philippe Sands and to Tzedek for organising a really interesting discussion on human rights, the Holocaust and international justice. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course tours in London. For 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful, please consider giving a few pounds a month via the Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash better human. Thank you very much to the editor, Samantha Bruff, and the podcast's research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. Hold up. 